Hi, everyone, and welcome back to House Wine. Uh, I'm the host. I've built my little pillow fort uh, here in Toronto. Uh, my name is Rachel, and today we're going to talk about Kava. Uh, so my intention was to post this sparkling wine episode right before New Year's uh, so that we could all, you know, talk about sparkling wine on the the day that is uh, sparkling wine. But I just had a very lazy uh, in between New Year's and Christmas. Uh, the restaurant was closed and I really kind of took advantage of the way I think most uh, like quote unquote normal people uh, <laughs> like everybody else does uh, to not really work, but just to like relax. And every time I sat down to do the podcast, I was just, I just didn't want to. And so I, I didn't, I put Grand Marnie in my coffee and just, uh, you know, took the, took the time off. And then ironically, um, went back to work for a week and now we are back in a lockdown. Uh, so I have all the time off in the world. So there's going to be lots and lots of episodes to write, record, etc. So we're going to talk about Cava today. And when we talk about Cava, we're really talking about Spanish sparkling wine. And there are other wines in Spain, to be sure, that are sparkling. There's some like esoteric semi-sparkling wines like Chacolina, but the majority of all sparkling wine that is coming from Spain is Cava. And what is Cava? Well, much like everything, it is a geographically designated region making a specific style of wine that has become so prolific that we now use it almost like it's its own brand name, much like some of the other great sparkling wines of the world like Prosecco or Champagne. They've just become kind of synonymous with a wine that sparkles. You know, people will be like, I'll have the champagne. And you're like, ah, that's actually Cremont. But people don't really know the difference. So we're here to find out the difference and to really get to the root of what makes Cava Cava, what makes Cava tick. So Cava is complex. <laughs> it has a crazy history. Uh, the grapes are not grapes that we know offhand, and the key players are not names that we would readily kind of say out loud and know from just a few Keeley, Keeley, well-placed advertisements, it's like some of the big players in Champagne, like Veuve Clicquot or Moet Chandon. And for this reason, we are going to split Cava into two episodes, just to make this information a little bit uh, more digestible. And again, so you don't have to hear me go on and on for an hour about, you know, styles and rivers and sweetness levels, that will be for next episode. So this week, we're just going to go into the quote unquote fun stuff, as I like to call it. We're going to do history, we're going to do grapes, and then we're going to do producers. So if you want the real, the nitty gritty, the Appalachians, the wine law, uh, you will have to wait until next week. I know, too bad, so sad. So this is the history of Cava. And like, Many of the wines of northern Spain, intrinsically, it is linked to France and to the history of phylloxera, that tiny little root louse that caused so much havoc and so much strife in the wine industry at the end of the 19th century and in the beginning of the 20th century as well. The history of Cava really starts with one person, and it starts with a man named Josep Raventos. And in the mid-19th century, he had a winery. Uh, the winery was in Pinedes, 
in the Catalan region of Spain, and that winery was called Codornia. I always want to say Cordonia, but it's Codornia. So in the northeast corner, uh, close to France, the same area as Priorat that we have talked about before, they were really making a lot of still wines, which, contrary to what we know of what they grow in Panetta's today, which is mostly white wine, they were actually making mostly red wines. They were making a lot of Grenache and a lot of Carignan-based wines that were probably, I mean, I wasn't alive, nor do I know, nor do I think any of these wines really made it to existence today, but I can imagine they were probably like fuller, uh, bodied, fruitier wines kind of due to the Mediterranean climate that is around there. So Reventos went on this trip around Europe to promote the wines of Codornia and of the Panetta's region and to learn some winemaking techniques from the French because that's kind of what everybody did back in the day was, you know, I'm going on this trip to learn uh, the best about wine from the people who are the best at it, and that was the French, because they were at the top of their winemaking game. The most expensive and the most sought-after wines in the world in this time were coming out of France, and a few of them were also coming out of Germany as well. Sort of the sweet wines of the Mosul and the Clarets of Bordeaux were basically the most popular wines in the mid-19th century. So, of course, on his journey, Reventos stopped in Champagne. And, of course, he was really taken with the way that the Champenois were making these sort of new and interesting wines in a sparkling style. So returning to Panedes and to the Cordonier winery, travel oh, I got it that time, <laughs> traveling throughout Europe, he arrived back at basically the exact time that Phylloxera was devastating vineyards, and many of the grapes that had traditionally been grown, like Grenache and other red grapes, were really being uprooted or torn out of their vineyards. However, some of the higher elevation grapes that grew on the mountainous regions of the area were surviving and escaping the phylloxera outbreak, most likely because they were grown on higher elevation, and this meant sandier soils. So remember, phylloxera really does not like sand. We know this based on a few factors, uh, but where there's sandy soils, phylloxera kind of has a hard time getting into the root. So Codorne Winery set out to make a sparkling wine in the style of Champagne using these grapes that were left over growing on the mountains. And their very first sparkling wines came out in 1887, and they were actually very well received. They made these wines in the traditional method, or sometimes called the Champagne method. And if you would like to know more about what that is... Well, there is a whole episode on sparkling wine and methods of making sparkling wine in season one. So go back and listen to it because we're going to talk a lot about sparkling wine making this time. But instead of using the same grapes as champagne, they started using indigenous grapes to the Panadas region. And these grapes were Shirello. It's spelled very funny and we're going to go over it again in a, in a minute. But Shirello spelled X A R. E-L-L-O. Sometimes there's a hyphen in between the two L's. That's like the Catalan way of spelling it. Uh, Maccabeo. And, of course, Parayeda, a grape that nobody's ever heard of. And we'll go over those, like I said, uh, when we finish talking about history. But these grapes took so well to the production of sparkling wine that when they went to replant all those vineyards that had been destroyed by phylloxera, 
they did not replant the Grenache and those red grapes that had been planted, but rather they favored these new white grapes and these new styles of sparkling wine. So there was just one problem. From the very first bottlings right up until the 1970s, Cava was pretty much on this steady uptick with a lot of producers embracing the new style of wine and a lot of people buying it and drinking it. By the 1950s, Cava had taken its place as the number one consumed wine domestically in Spain. No longer were they drinking French imports, and many houses that we know today were well-established, from big commercial houses like Freshnet and Codornia, <laughs> said it again, and then some of the more boutique houses like Augusti Torello Mata. They were already really taking Cava to this like new height and securing their place in the export market. But like I said, there was one little thing. They were calling themselves Spanish Champagne. Now, if we know anything about the Champenoise, other than... <laughs> about their wines, we know that they are very litigious. And they don't really like it when anything is called champagne that isn't made in champagne. They don't even really like it when it's like a joke or a slogan. So we know that they really, really don't like it when it's another wine or really anything that uses their name at all. So in 1972, the town of St. Saderni de Noia in Penedes in Catalonia, which is where most of the great houses of Cava are based out of, they created the Consejo Regulador de los Vinos Espumosos to regulate the production of traditional method sparkling wine in Spain. One of the first orders of business was to give the wine a name really to kind of like get the champenoise off their backs and this like legal tangle that they got themselves caught up in with champagne. But they did that. That was the first order of business. And the name that they came up with was Calva. And that is still what we call it today. It was obviously, it's like not a, a secretive name, um, referring to the caves where they store the wine. Because like in Champagne, they store a lot of their wine in caves, and uh, they were like, great, we store wine in caves, we'll call our wine Cava. So Cava, for all intents and purposes, became both a region and a style at this point, because there were in fact places outside Panetta's that were making traditional style sparkling wines, and Cava encompassed all of them. So now today, there are Cava productions in not only Panetta's, but in Aragon, in Castile de Leon in Extremadura, in Rioja, in Basque Country, in Navarra, and in Valencia. And these are considered to be the seven autonomous regions of Cava. Though the most important region is still Penedes and that town, of course, the famous town of St. Sederni de Noia, which is really the heart of all Cava in Spain. Now, I suppose that I could go back and check, but I can't remember <laughs> if I talked about this in the sparkling wine episode, but I'm going to talk about it again if I did. And that is the Giro Palette. When you are making traditional method sparkling wine, the thing that gives it bubbles is that you have to re-ferment it inside the bottle. In doing so, you need sugar and yeast, and the yeast eat the sugar, and then of course they die. And when they die, they leave this kind of sticky sludge at the bottom of the bottle called lees. Now, the Giro Palette was actually invented by two French winemakers, 
and it is a device that holds 504 bottles at the same time in this kind of like cube cage. It rotates them mechanically, so the lees moves to the neck of the bottle, and you can remove it easily through disgorgement. Again, if you are a little lost on the process of making sparkling wine, check out that episode in season one. Before the Giro Palette, all sparkling wine was painstakingly turned and lifted, turned and lifted by hand in order for these lees to get to the top of the bottle. And now you may be questioning why I'm going on about this when I just said it was invented by the French. Well, even though it was invented by the French, the first people to actually use it were in fact the cava industry. And more specifically, in the early 70s, the house that was credited with really bringing the Giro Palette to becoming an integral part of the sparkling wine process was Codorneau. So... (laughs) What will I say about Codornia? Well, they are a huge house, and they do make wine that we like to call, in a polite way, entry-level wine, aka the cheap stuff. But historically, they were able to do so because of their very early adaptation of mechanized winemaking and winemaking practices. And this would become a revelation in Cava and sparkling wine for pretty much all over the world eventually but very important for Cava in that they were able to produce more traditional method sparkling wine faster than anyone else right from the outset. So from the 1970s onwards, they were really able to proliferate the market, and Cava is still everywhere today. Think you were drinking Prosecco in that mimosa? Well, think again. (laughs) You're probably drinking Cava in it. Um, I mean, it could be Prosecco too. They're both sort of occupy a similar place in the market, but cava is cheap and there's just so much of it. So now that's not to say that all cava is created equal. There is some very not cheap cava out there. Cava that rivals champagne, uh, but we'll get into that momentarily. So that is pretty much the history of what you need to know regarding cava. So let's get into some of the grapes. The main grape, really the star of cava, is indigenous to Catalonia, and that is the grape called Chirello. There is a few mutations of this grape. Sometimes it has a pink skin, and they call that panza rosada, but most of the time it is a white grape that is known for having distinct orchard fruit character, lots of apple, lots of pear, and kind of like a light herbaceousness, and a little bit of florality. It's known for retaining a lot of acidity, even though it's grown in a warm climate, And in the blend of grapes that make up cava, it brings both body and structure. Shirella was really the Chardonnay of cava production. And if you have ever had the chance to drink the still wine version of this grape, it really does kind of drink like a full-bodied, unoaked Chardonnay. It's actually very delicious. And there are more and more producers making still wine versions of these cava grapes in Panetes. And we see this more and more with wine houses kind of trying to like branch out and make a more diverse array of wines. And there's just a lot of it. They grow a lot of Shirello in this region. This is one of the most prolifically grown grapes in the Catalan region, so it stands to reason that it wouldn't all be going to cava production. There is one thing here, and we see this a lot when we talk about the grapes of Spain, and that is that Shirello is most commonly not always known as Shirello. In fact, when you're making a still wine from it and you are outside Panetes, you're just in the plain old Catalonia, this grape will often be called by a different name and it will be called 
Panza Blanca. A bottle of still wine from Chirello will more often go by this name, this Panza Blanca. Like Chardonnay, there are some producers that make Cava and very proudly do so as a single variety bottling of Chirello. And there are also single vineyard Chirellos. So that kind of just goes to show you the status that this grape has, even though many people have never heard of it. The producer Gramona makes a very famous cava from just Chirello, as does the house Recardedo. More often, though, more often than not, though, Chirello does not act alone. It has two friends that act along with it, and those are Maccabeo and Perayeda. Maccabeo is most likely being like the slightly more recognizable and more common of the two in Pinedes as it's often mistaken for Shrello and vice versa. This doesn't happen so much anymore now that we use DNA to identify grapes other than just analyzing them by the shape of their leaves in the nursery, as was most often the case kind of back in the day. But Maccabeo has been around uh, for a while, and it's been indigenous to this region for a very long time. It started getting mentioned in the writings of monks, of course, in the south of France, in Roussillon, in the early 1600s. And it spread around the south of France and the north of Spain and was pretty easy to grow. It's one of the main grapes in White Rioja, where they also have another name for it, where they call it Viura. But no matter where you find Maccabeo, you are usually going to find it as part of a blend, whether they are mixing it with Garnacha Blanca in southern France or Chirello and Cava. The reason is that this grape makes wines that are pretty low in acidity. So enter its blending partner, Chirello, which has bracingly high acid, and you have a very nice balanced wine to make a good glass of bubbles out of. And the last grape that makes up the Cava blend is Perrieda. Probably the lesser known of these three grapes, and that's saying something because none of these grapes are particularly well known, even though they make up one of the world's most predominant sparkling wines. There is almost no way, uh, if you are listening to this show, by the way, that you have like not had one of these wines. It's almost impossible. Though Parieta was thought to originate in Aragon, which is just west of Panedes, most Parieta that we find today comes from Panedes, comes from the home of Cava. And this is the most aromatic and floral of the Cava grapes, with lots of citrus and lots of acidity. It comes sort of just uh, under Chirello on the high acid scale. The reason that this grape is so popular for making Cava is that it is very well suited to being grown at higher elevations. And this is where you will find it higher up on the mountains around Panedes and around Catalonia. Being a bit of a more niche grape, it does have a bit of a cult following. And there are some cava producers that, like Chirello, also make this into a still wine, though it is a little bit less common. One of those producers that makes a white wine that is 100% Parieta is the same one that makes one that is 100% Shrello, and that is Gramona. The wine that they are making from Perietta is called Moustillant Brut Sparkling, and they also make a still wine from it too. Now, of course, we can't forget that you are also allowed to make Rosé Cava, and that that style of wine needs help from some red grapes to make it pink. So you can, of course, in Cava, grow the grapes Pinot Noir, Montestrel, which is very common all over Catalonia, Garnacha Negra, and Trapat. All of those, with the exception of Trapat, can be also made into white wines. 
but Tripat is the only one that's allowed to be fully red and therefore make the wine rosé through blending. Now, there are lots of regulations and rules in Cava, like a lot. There's sweetness requirements, there's aging requirements, there's places that you can grow the wine, there's places that you can grow the wine outside Panetta's. Uh, So that is why we are going to, in fact, split this episode up into two, and we are going to talk about all of that really deeply nerdy stuff next week. But before we get into the numbers and the sweetness levels, etc., I think we'll cap this episode off by doing a little bit of a producer profile and talk about one of the main producers in the region. So I've said it a few times this episode, but there are a lot of cheaper producers of cava out there from very entry-level Codornia and Frechnet, which you can buy, again, this is in my market, but from like 10 to $12 a bottle. They're very much at the low end. Mind you, they also do make, those houses do make some higher end wines, but there's also some very good mid-level cab out there, like the wines of Paris Balta, which are quite good, but by no means are ever going to break your bank. You can get a really basic bottle of Paris Balta Cava, or my favorite, the Paris Balta Rosé. Very, very delicious. And those come in under $20. So they're still very affordable, sparkling wine options if you like something that's a little bit drier than Prosecco. Because even though a lot of people think they love Prosecco, what they don't know is that secretly Prosecco is quite a sweet wine, which is part of the reason why we like it. But if you want something drier, drink Cava. But let's talk a little bit more about a niche producer and a house that I think really defines this region in terms of place and in terms of the style of their wines. So, of course, there are many great houses, but let's talk about Augusti Torello Mata. Now, Augusti Torello Mata, for whom the winery is named, was a real person. He was born in 1926 in Panedes, and when he was just 18 years old, yes, 18 years old, he opened a wine analysis laboratory in St. Sederni, which is crazy. <laughs> I, I can tell you authoritatively that when I was 18 years old, I wouldn't, there's just like, I would not have had the means, the knowledge, any of the things necessary to open a wine analysis laboratory. I mean, I probably made a joke calling my kitchen table a wine analysis laboratory, but it, yeah, so 18 years old, this guy goes into town and is like, I'm going to start analyzing the compounds of wine. Wild. So he was very highly regarded uh, in and influential and sort of like, creating uh, some of the cava blends that are still used today. But in the 1950s, he began making his own wine. And then in the 1970s, he decided to model a wine after the Champenoise. So every great house in Champagne has what they call a tête de cuvée. And that is to say a wine that is the best wine that house produces. So for example, the tête de cuvée of Moet Chandon is none other than Dom Perignon the best wine that the house of Moet Chandon produces. So they're kind of like these brand names within the brand names. So Augusti Torello Mata began making a wine called Crypta and really started a movement towards quality in Cava where houses also began making wines and tete cuvées in this style. Now, Crypta is available in my market anyways, 
And the great thing about it is that even though it is a high-end wine and it's an expensive wine, it is nowhere near the expense as some of the great Tete Cuvées of Champagne. But it is an exceptional quality wine. It also comes in a very weird bottle. Uh, it's apparently they've patented it, but it looks like a bowling ball. It's very odd. But being a family business, the company is now run by his two children and is slated to be taken over by his grandchildren. And I think the interesting thing about this house is that they only use Shirello, Maccabeo, Parietta, and Trapat for their wines, as they believe, really, really strongly believe, in promoting the grapes of Panetes and of Cava rather than using any international varieties, as some Cava producers have started incorporating a little bit of like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir into their blends. Something that may seem a little bit more uh, Champagne or French, but these more traditional houses like Auguste Trelomata are really sort of like veering in this other direction and being like, no, we're only using the indigenous grapes of Panetes. And so they still make wines, and they still make all of their wines based on the three grapes. And the nice thing I also like about this house is that they make still wines. They make a still Shirello, and they also make a still Maccabeo. So it's kind of like a one-stop shop for everything that's happening in Cava, and it's based in the town of St. Saderni de Noia, which is, again, a very important kind of like hot spot for Cava production. So... That's Cava for today. Next week, we're going to focus in on some of the more nitty-gritty things that you need to know if your intent is to study wine or pass a wine exam. So we're going to go into, like, geographical features, soils, sugar levels, ugh, the worst, <laughs> styles, etc. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if uh, I know it's too late for New Year's, but you know what? We're in lockdown now, so there's lots to celebrate you have to celebrate something otherwise you'll go absolutely mad so go grab yourself a bottle of cava we're on a budget get a bottle of paris balta and uh hunker down and do some wine studying so if you did learn something today if you enjoyed this podcast uh this is 100 percent written produced and narrated by myself rachel so scroll down for two seconds leave five stars leave a rating leave a review it all goes a long way to support me and to help this show uh this podcast does have an instagram it's housewine podcast at instagram at instagram on instagram or you can look me up my personal instagram rachel that's rachel with an ael and picard like the captain and if you're desperate to get a hold of me or you would love to request an episode you can also email this podcast housewine podcast at gmail.com. And that's it for today. Stay safe. Leave the house to buy a bottle of Cava. Go right back into the house. <laughs> Lockdown 3.0. We're all going to make it through this. It'll all be good. And uh, you'll, get some, uh, you'll get some good content out of it. All right. Stay safe, friends. Bye.